Uh, today we are reading from Galatians 5, 7 to 15. So I'll give you a chance to look it up here. How fast can you do it? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In, the case, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. As uh, Kristen already read, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Galatians chapter 5. We will be there uh, in those verses 17 to 15. Uh, For the bulk of the morning, we will look at some other scripture. I'll have it on screen for you. You can move around, bounce around with me. That would be great. Uh, Before we dive in uh, to this amazing passage, I would like to pray for us one more time. Would you bow with me, please? Gracious Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you uh, again for this day. Thank you, Father, for blessing us. Uh, We are very grateful in this part of the world for the sunshine. Thank you for uh, shining down on us and bringing summer and warmth to this place. Father, we look around your creation and we are stunned by your beauty. Uh, We come here today and we We look at your word, we read your word, we hear your word, uh, read and proclaimed, and we are stunned by your beauty. Father, we just pray today, Holy Spirit, I pray that as we go through this passage, you would speak to us, not my words, not the words of mere man, but your words that were given to Paul, that were written and spoken by Paul to this church that he loved, these churches that he loved in Galatia, and for our church here today, and for all the churches that read these letters whom you love today, Lord Jesus. So we thank you for this passage, for these words. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we encounter it together this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So I wonder, I was thinking about this this week, I wonder how many of you, and you don't have to raise hands, please don't raise your hands. Uh, I'll do it for all of us. If if anyone here has ever experienced a a near-life death experience, Um, a time when you were brought face-to-face with your potential mortality, Now, that may not have happened to you personally here today, but you may have walked with someone where that has happened or heard of someone where that has happened. And and you you can imagine for yourself what it would feel like to be at that point where all of a sudden, no matter how old you are, especially when you're younger, you're thinking, I may die sooner than later. Um, It's a pretty you know, shocking time. But I think this might sound familiar to all of us. If, if you have, I have been in a place where I thought, probably not, but I did think that, wow, I'm going to have this operation. And they said, you know, you sign these papers, you could die. Thank you. I guess I'll better sign anyway. Um, but I know that some of us have faced that. We've thought of that. We've had an accident. Something's happened. And I think that most of you would agree that most people who've gone through that kind of an experience have an epiphany of sorts, Right? A moment where they resolve that after this is all done, after I am better, after God heals me, hopefully, dear Lord, please, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live differently, right? They have this kind of epiphany that happens to them. And, of course, there's the obvious. Well, I'm going to eat better. 
right? I'm going to exercise more. Uh, I'm going to rest better. I'm going to stress less. I'm going to take life a little slower, you know, at a slower pace, you know, because all this anxiety and stress probably caused this heart or whatever the problem might have been. And, of course, some of us might say, I'm going to even seek God more. Yes, I'm going to read those daily readings every morning. I promise you, Lord, just heal me, get me out of here, I pray. It seems that at those times when your mortality is right there in front of you, that we all face those clarifying moments, right? They're clarifying moments. But then what really happens? I mean, I ask the question, what happens? What, what happened with me? Well, we start off really well, don't we? You know, we get out of hospital, or we get past that scenario, or, or, and then we're like, yeah, we got a good start. We're really at it. Reading the Bible every day, praying, you know. Uh, even those close to us, they notice that something's happened. We're nicer, right? We're nicer, really we are. We're, we're more loving, you know, we're more relaxed. People notice these things about people who go through these things. And yet, I don't know about you or those you know who have been through a life-altering event like this. And it can include, of course, other life challenges like the death or loss of a loved one, a relationship that breaks up, a great financial loss. Uh, But once we're back on our feet again, we do really well for a season. And then I think most of us would honestly say, well, well, what happened to that resolve? (laughs) What happened? It's like New Year's resolution. Three months later, what happened to that resolve? Where did all that existential clarifying motivation to live a better, more healthy life, go. What happened? Where'd it go? Seems to be the human condition, though, doesn't it? We all struggle in life this way from time to time. We have a short few spurts when we're we're so dedicated and making progress, and then it seems like that for all of us here in this room, maybe some of you are way better at this than I am, it seems like we're all pretty good sprinters and terrible long-distance runners, right? I used to hate long-distance running in high school. I don't know what it was, but I was a good sprinter. But that seems to be our lives. And this basically is the point that Paul is going to make today in this passage. He's going to be talking about the difference between people who sprint and people who are long-distance runners. So your message title for today is The Law of Love. I really liked putting those two words together, and that's what it is. It's the law of love. I want to show you three things. In order to live out the law of love in this world, in your life as a Christian today, you need to do three things that we'll see in this passage. Number one, you need to stay in the race. You need to stay in the race. Number two, you need to avoid trip-ups. And number three, you need to serve to win. You need to serve to win. Let's look at the first three verses in our passage today under the heading, Stay in the Race. Paul says, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So at this point in the letter, uh, I'm sure most of you, as we've been in this since January, uh, I would agree that we've heard the Apostle Paul go from being completely astonished and disappointed with the Gentile Galatian believers in the churches that he'd planted. I mean, he's, been, he's called them foolish. He's been very astonished and disappointed in them for believing the lie, and he's been very angry. He's used, very, and today, some of the language he's going to use He's been very angry with these false teachers who have come into the church, leading them astray and teaching them a different gospel, which was a gospel of, yes, Jesus, 
Yes, you need to place your faith in Jesus, but in order to be truly saved, truly approved, and truly accepted by God, you need to be Jewish and, and do the works of the law so that God can see you're a good person and therefore love you and allow you to become his child. And so we're beginning, I think, to get a much better grasp of the gospel as we've been going through this letter, right? Uh, What they're preaching is not the gospel at all, and what Paul has been preaching, faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Just believe that he is the Son of God, that he died on the cross and in your place and for your sins, and you will be saved. Done. (laughs) It's done. That's what Paul has been preaching, and we've been seeing that. We've also been getting a much better grasp on what it means to be free in Christ, on our position, right, versus our practice, our standing in Christ in the heavenly places and our state, the way that we behave in this world and life today, on our relationship as a fully forgiven, fully approved, fully accepted son or daughter of God, and yet our relationship in this life going forward with the law. It's shocking. It still applies. It's still there. And so I wonder, do you hear Paul's love and lament in these words? I mean, because he's going to get pretty angry again in a minute, right? But he starts off with these words, you were running so well. I mean, what happened? I remember when I was there in Galatia, met you, preaching the gospel to you, telling you about Jesus. I remember seeing the light bulbs go on, your, your eyes open up, and the smiles come to your face, and you're placing your faith in Christ. And, and then since I've been here, I've been hearing really good reports until recently of what you've been doing with that faith. You've turned your backs on, on this pagan idolatry that you were giving yourself to, and instead you've, you've given yourself to holiness and righteousness. You've been sharing your faith with your family, friends, and neighbors, and your coworkers in your community. People are coming to faith in Christ because of you in Galatia, and the church is exploding. What happened? What happened? He's shocked. And then he asks, who hindered you. Now, honestly, it's a rhetorical question, right? We, we know, Paul knows who these people are. Now, he may not know who the ringleaders are and who some of them are by name, but he knows exactly who they are. They, they become somewhat infamous in the early church after the churches were planted 10, 15 years, actually 5 to 10 years on, where they were coming in behind Paul and the other apostles were planting churches, and they were called Judaizers, and they're preaching this false gospel. So Paul knows who they are. He accuses them, the false teachers, of hindering them, hindering the believers in Galatia. Now, I think most of you know that Paul has a thing for athletic metaphors, right? He's he's this guy. Most of you who are rock climbers, you know, uh, bikers, all the rest of it in this this crowd here, you know, you got to love Paul for this. I mean, maybe he was a, a runner. I have no idea, but he's really in to these metaphors. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, he says this, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? I mean, you would hope, right? They line up and somebody fires a gun and you would hope everybody's running, right? But he says, only one receives the prize. Now, back in those days and before the uh, Greco-Roman Olympics like we know today took place, there was only the first prize. There was no gold, silver, and bronze. We made that up, right? We added to that because we didn't want people to go home feeling like they hadn't participated. 
So run that you may obtain it, he says. Right? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. You know what it takes to be an athlete, he says? You know, you got to sacrifice to become an athlete that might win this prize. They do it, listen, to receive a perishable wreath. Those people who run in the Olympics in those games, they get a wreath that's going to just rust. It's going to die. We, an imperishable prize. He goes on and says, so I do not run aimlessly. I don't just run all over the place and do all different kinds of things. I'm focused. I do not box as one beating the air. No, I actually know I have a foe that I'm in a fight with. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Man, I said to Janice on the way here today, we need to do a sermon on this, just this one day, right? This is powerful. It's packed. It's beautiful. One of my favorite uh, metaphors, images that he gives is in Philippians 3.14 where he says this, and I love it. I, I try, honestly, I try to make it my life goal. Just, you know, I got a t-shirt, it's kind of ragged, but I'm trying to stay on this, right? I press on. Again, the Greek is kind of like leaning forward. I'm stretching myself towards what? The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You notice all those definite articles? Right? There is one goal, there's one prize, and there's one call. There's only one goal, prize, and call that you want, friends, in your life. And then lastly, near his death. Paul's expecting when he writes these words in 2 Timothy, he's expecting to be put to death. He was whipped within an inch of his life four times, we believe, and and persecuted constantly. And now he's in prison and he's thinking, I'm about to die. And these are his words. He's facing his mortality. And he says this, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You want a life first? maybe, Maybe put that, you know, on the mirror. Maybe say, that's what I want to be able to say one day, that I'm there. So now back in Galatians 5, the word hindered that the ESV uses here might might better be translated this way. Cut you off, or, or, or who tripped you up might actually be a better way of looking at that. You see in those, in those pre, uh, again, Greco-Roman Olympic days, um, the, the, the race that, that took place in that day was not on an oval track. In fact, what it was is there was a post out 100 yards, 200 yards, whatever it might be. There was a post, and you had to run to that post. And and there were rules. Not that everybody, you know, stuck to the rules, but there were rules. You had to run to the post, run around the post, and come back. And the first person back, of course, is the winner, gets the prize. One person gets that prize. Now, there, there was, you know, there was a little bit of interference going on, right? Mainly at the post, because people wanted to get as close to the post because you don't want to run too far around it, right? You want to minimize the distance. And there were people like, whoop, whoop, you know, like all kinds of things going on. And sometimes people would get literally tripped up. So there was strategy involved in doing this. So the cutting off or tripping up is what the Greek word actually hindered means. And Paul's speaking to an audience who would understand this, right? They'd be going, oh, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about a race, Right? He's talking about these kind of races that we're in, and people get tripped up. And so what were they, listen, 
Ask this question. What were they being hindered from as they ran the race of the Christian life? What was it that Paul says they were being hindered from? It's interesting. Obeying the truth. (laughs) That's what they were being hindered from. So, So now look at this now. What does that say about his previous lament? You were running so well. Well, it must mean that previously to being tripped up by these false teachers, they were obeying the truth. All of it. Their record was pretty good. They were all doing very well. They were obedient to what, though? You have to ask yourself, what were they being obedient to? Well, again, and this is the challenge that we've been seeing through this letter, because we have a challenge with this in our world today, about the law. They were being obedient to the law of God. Now, not the sacrificial right, uh, aspects of the, the, the Mosaic law, but the Ten Commandments for certain they were being obedient to. And again, that's, of course, our problem. Our understanding of the law prior to our salvation and after has been somewhat skewed in the way sometimes we read the Bible or in the way it actually has been preached to us. What we learned then when we looked at it before was this, that being out from under the law does not mean that we don't obey the law, right? I know that some of you think this is a repeat, but you'll see it's a little different. But that's the refrain, refrain that many Christians like to haul out any time you ask them to give or serve or to obey God's word. Well, thank goodness, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. I don't, I don't know how many pastors, when they hear that, they just, they just want to run over to a wall and bang their heads, right? Because, because it's, it's like, it's so badly taken out of context when you say that. But people do it. We do it. I, I think I've actually said it. It, it. Listen, let me clarify it again for you, for us. It's the penalty of the law that you're no longer under. We're no longer under the penalty of the law. If, big if, if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, right? Because anyone who's in this room or in this world who has yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ, they are fully still under the penalty of the law. So it's alive and well. We need it. It's our, it's our, you know, it's our nursery uh, a teacher that brings us to the understanding of what sin is and brings us to salvation. We need it. But once saved, we, listen, we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, the idea is we are able to now, just like Jesus did, fulfill the law, to keep the law. Perfectly? Position, practice. But there's hope. There's hope for us. So by asking, who's hindering you here? What Paul is really getting at in context with what we saw last week is this. What's keeping you from obeying the law? What's keeping you from being the Christian that you've saved, been saved to be? And, and it's strange, isn't it? I mean, again, it, it, it's strange what Paul's doing here. On the one hand, the false teachers are insisting that you need to keep the law to be saved, and now Paul is asking, why aren't you running the race well by obeying the law? It's, it's, you know, it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? It sounds a bit weird. So what's going on? Well, again, it's that problem that we have with the two poles that I've been talking about throughout this whole series. We call this series, or the title for it is The Pursuit of Liberty, Freedom, But in the Christian life, there are these two poles, opposing poles, that we tend to run to, one of the other, right? Legalism over here and license over here. 
So let me try to illustrate this graphically for you. I, I actually tried to draw something to show you this. And it's, it's, it's on the basis of a triangle, which is great, right? So, so first we have on the bottom, we have legalism, right? We, we have, which is free if you keep the law. So the idea of legalism, even in the church for Christians, is, well, I'm saved, I know that, but I just, I just messed up big time. So, so what have I got to do? What, what, are the, what, what things do I have to do in the church? Or how do I have to pray? How many prayers do I have to say? What do I have to do to, to get God to wipe that out again so that, so that I'm good with God? So that you know, you know, it, we have a healthy relationship again. Well, the answer is nothing. But there are a lot of people in the church in North America, hopefully nobody here, who will say to you, oh, I'll tell you exactly what you got to do. You need the King James Version. I don't know. Whatever it might be, right? It could be a myriad of things that people can say, well, no problem. We'll help you, get, help you get back to your good standing with God. You could do this or this or this or stop doing this, this, and this, right? It's all the do's and don'ts again. But then there's also the license side. Yeah, oh, it's so good being in Jesus. And, and I know I mess up all the time, but, you know, freedom, liberty in Jesus Christ means I'm actually free to do whatever I want. Now, some of us might think that what we really need is to be somewhere in the middle of that triangle, right? We need a balance. We need to come to the middle. And the reason why I drew a triangle is, no, no, no. It, it, no. <laughs> it's actually way beyond that. Neither of these are healthy. Neither of these healthy. What we need is freedom in Christ. We need to be free and love frees us to be obedient. That's the pattern. That is what Paul is actually trying to teach us through this letter. That's actually what the gospel frees us to. And so I hope that gives you a better picture of this problem, this, uh, of the law before we come to the Lord and afterwards and how it relates to our lives. Look at verses 8 and 9 again in chapter 5 with me one more time. And it says, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So Paul's going to anchor his assertion with these words. The one who called you, God himself, would never, ever try to persuade you that you can live your life any old way that you want to. God would never say license is right. God would never do that. God would never say that his law is no longer the standard for our obedience. He would never say that. Paul would never say that. Remember, God didn't give the law. I mentioned this maybe uh, within a couple of months of this series, that you know, we get the impression that God just gave us the law, gave it to Moses for the people of Israel, and for us to, to know what sin looks like, and, and then you know, once, we're, once we're in, it's done. Right? But actually, the, the main reason why God gave us the law was for our flourishing. He wanted us to be fully human. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four are how we love God, and the last six are how we love one another. It's, it's about how to be perfectly human and how to flourish was really what he had in mind. Paul adds the, the common proverb here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And, of course, it's taken from the metaphor of a bakery. And he simply tells them and us that, listen, all it takes to distort, to pervert the gospel, is a little false teaching, is a little legalism, is a little license. That's all it takes is what he says. But, again, we must see these two opposing poles. You know, false teaching in the church is both legalism and license. It comes in both of those forms. So we could say it this way. Yeah, so from a legalistic perspective, we say just to add a little bit of do this or come get this or add this, 
and we would pervert and rob the heart of the gospel. It's also a little like this. Yeah, what, what we need is a, a little more, you know, did God really say? Um, is Paul's teaching the same as Jesus? I mean, Paul, let's face it, you know, a man of, of his culture, of his context, of that day, a little chauvinistic, maybe a little too patriarchal in the way that he writes. Um, you know, we, we really don't, honestly, in the New Testament, you know, since we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, we, we don't really have to attend church on Sunday. Like, we, we, can, we can worship God in the creation, right? And on and on it goes. License is preached. So here's the key. This metaphor, this little proverb is pretty, it goes really to the core of something that we need to hear, and that is this. It's not like a, a little bit of false teaching might make some people or some of the church or part of the church a little legalistic or a little too much on the license side. The whole church will go that way, is what is being said here. If it's allowed to grow, if it's allowed to stay in the church, any of you bakers here, you know how this works, right? You, you put a little leaven in there and then you leave it, and, and, and it, le- it leavens the whole lump, Right? It really does. And so that's what he's suggesting we need to avoid. So I love this about Paul. He, he, he lays this on. He, he puts this out there. And the bottom line is, guys, you need to stay in the race. I don't know who's been tripping you up. You know who they are. You know what they're saying. I'm going to tell you what to do with them in a minute. But listen, for now, stay in the race, guys. Stay in the race. And now, now he wants to encourage them. <laughs> He wants to encourage them. He's got this beautiful pastor's heart. I love it about him. He has confidence, not so much in them, but as we're going to see in someone much more important. So point number two is this. Avoid trip-ups. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord. (laughs) Jesus said, I will build my church. So thankful for that. (laughs) Takes a lot of pressure off. That you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So I wonder, do you see the key words here? First, his confidence, of course, is in the Lord. He's not putting confidence in these false teachers, clearly, but he's not, although he's trying to build confidence in you, in me, in the Galatian believers at that time, he's actually also doing it by saying, listen, if you need confidence, don't put it in those men. Don't even put it in me, Paul. Put it in the Lord. Because that's where I get my confidence from. So there is one view on at least the main subject here, of course, there is. And that is the second thing Paul says, there is no other view. I find this, again, he's been stressing this throughout. And again, in our modern church and culture today, man, how many different views are there, right? Uh, on how we run and function as a church and who can do what and who can do this and all the rest of it goes. And Paul's saying, look, there's no other view. When it comes to the gospel, there's no other view. Keep that in mind. And third, Paul says that the one, now there may have been a ringleader amongst these false teachers. We don't know. He was never named. Paul's maybe being gracious here. He may know who this person is. But he does say this. He will bear a serious penalty. Now, that that sounds like a warning to me. I don't know about you. But that's not just a warning to the false teacher and his disciples. But that's a warning to anyone who buys into it, is it not? You're going to bear a serious penalty for leading sheep astray, other believers astray, by preaching a false gospel or a false doctrine that the Bible clearly teaches. 
So he goes on, he says, but listen, but if I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So Paul has got wind that some of these false teachers were actually suggesting this. They were suggesting, yeah, yeah, no, listen, we understand what Paul taught you about faith alone and Christ alone, and that's it, that's all you need for salvation. But when he comes back, or he's actually been preaching elsewhere, because we've heard from reliable sources that he's actually been preaching that, yeah, that's not enough. You do need works of the law in order to be saved. And so Paul's basically saying to them, what are you talking about? If, if that's true, then why are you persecuting me? Why are you criticizing me if that's true? And Paul says, no, it's not because of that. It's because I am preaching Christ crucified, period. And that's what is offensive to you. See, they were, they were preaching Christ and circumcision. Paul was preaching Christ and the cross, period. They were telling the Gentile Galatians that they could, hear this, save themselves by their own good works. Paul's saying, no, there's the cross. And that's evidence that you cannot do this. Hallelujah. Give him glory. Amen. Right? You can't do this. And and the evidence is Jesus did it for you. Had to do it for you. So what what they were preaching was actually quite flattering, wasn't it? It was like, listen, God really loves you. Obviously, he sent Jesus to die for you, but you know what? He, he really thinks pretty, pretty, you know, quite highly of you, and, and he knows that you know, given the opportunity, you, you could participate in this. You could do something to participate in your salvation. It's flattering, isn't it? It's like puffing you up. It's like, yeah, okay, what do I got to do? Give me three things. I'll, I'll do them for you. What Paul was preaching, on the other hand, is very offensive. It's very offensive. People don't like to be told that a lowly, essentially homeless man had to die on an offensive Roman cross for them, for their sins. People don't like that. I don't know if you've tried talking to people in downtown Squamish. Say, hey, by the way, did you know? They don't like that. John Stott in his commentary, uh, he said this. He said, people hate to be told that they can be saved only at the foot of the cross. And they oppose the preacher who tells them so. And when he says this, I don't take it like he's talking about guys just like me. He's talking about all of us who preach and proclaim the gospel, right? People hate that. So finally, Paul's going to cut to the chase. Sorry, that was a pun. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. Right? Uh, what he says here has, honestly has theologians, commentary writers, and pastors alike rubbing their chins for literally centuries. Many actually staying away from even reading this verse that we've gotten to, right? He literally says this. He says, I wish those who are tripping you up would go all the way. Why stop there? <laughs> I want them to go all the way and make themselves eunuchs. Castrate themselves. Now, you can imagine, this letter gets to Galatia, and they're reading it out loud, and some of the Judaizers are like, what? (laughs) Excuse me? It's it's harsh. As graphic and and as harsh as this sounds for for a pastor and apostle, apostle, let me be clear about this. We've already heard Paul allude to this, about casting out that woman, remember? When he's talking about Hagar and, and Sarah, 
Paul's attitude and the apostles' attitude, and quite frankly, Jesus Christ's attitude is, when you identify false teaching in the church, put it out. End of story. How often have you seen that happening? How often does that happen? Why? Well, for fear. People might leave if we say, no, this is what the Bible says. I'm hanging my head on that. I'm going to fall on that sword. We're going to fall on that sword. People don't like that. So he cuts to the chase here. He puts it on the line. He says, cut them off. You know, it's strange, strange when you think about it. On the one hand, Paul says, castrate. And next, he's, gonna, he's literally going to preach love. What's going on here? There's poles here happening, right? Paul's really old school, I think some of us might say. But also, I would suggest this to you, to every one of us in this room. If you and I do not love the church, Jesus' body... If you will not take a stand for the truth of his word, then this is what the result will be. People will flip between legalism and license, and you know what? The growth that we need to see, the freedom that we need to see in Christ individually and corporately will not happen. There will be constant strife. Sadly, when I'm a big-time reader. Most of you know that. I lurk on Facebook. Be careful if you want to friend me. No, I'm just kidding. But I read constantly because I love culture. I love what's going on. I want to know what's going on. And listen, sadly, there's a growing number in the church today of young men and women who in the name of apparently love will not take a stand, will refuse to take a stand. Authors and bloggers galore can say whatever they want, write whatever they want, question whatever they want. And what's the response of many, not just young and older, but many in the church today? You know, I think it's important to ask questions. I think it's really important that we ask questions. We just can't take, you know, verbatim what people 100 years ago said or 200 or 500 or my dad said or my pastor said. You know, we need, we need to ask questions. We need to get to the bottom of these things. We need, we need to be loving and understanding, you know. I, I don't want to be the judge. Besides, these people are brothers and sisters in Christ too, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some are wolves. Some are false teachers. So now we need to look at the last point here. Paul's going to lead us out of this avoiding trip-ups. And I've got a point for, for you as an application and conclusion to that today. But let's move on to point number three. You need to serve to win. So Paul takes us through, you know, staying in the race, avoiding trip-ups so that you can stay in the race, and finally serve to win. In verse 13, he says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, these final three verses, I think, put together summarize really, really well what Paul has been getting at through this whole letter. You might notice that the key word in verses 13 and 14 is the word love, right? It's the key word. It is the key word. It's the most important word. But you know what? The word love is actually in the last verse, in verse 15, because it's the lack of love that causes that problem that we see in verse 15. So the word, I want to go back to verse 8 with you because there's an important word there that leads us into this uh, last part in this conclusion. The word persuasion can also be translated motivation that we see in verse 8. And so as we've already discovered, uh, our Christian liberty, our freedom in Christ has two opposing poles that tend to keep us from the purpose of the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us. So see it this way. We, we are often motivated toward either pole. 
legalism or license. And here's how it works. Paul starts with the reminder of our freedom, which is the key, and then look at what he does. He immediately goes to the license side of the equation. He says this. He says, listen, be free. Absolutely. Yes, be free. But don't misunderstand. Please don't misunderstand. Just because the law is not what saves you, don't think you can live and do whatever you want to do with your life, your flesh, now. Your freedom is not for that. That's not why Jesus died for you, so that you could have freedom like that. You see, here, here's the problem we could have if we misunderstand this. We agree with Paul, most of us agree with Paul from time to time about the law part. You know, about the legalism part. Who wants to be part of a legalistic church? Anybody? No. Okay. Most of us don't want to be part of a legalistic church. I get that. So we're, we're like, you know, if we're, if we're trying to share with a person who thinks all churches are a bunch of rules and regs, do's and don'ts, a bunch of, you know, hypocritical, judgmental people, you know, typically the way that we might, when we want to actually preach a more loving gospel to them, we might say something like this, oh, no, 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 no. I do understand that you might feel that the Bible, that Christianity is all about these rules and regs, these do's and don'ts, you know, about commandments and all. But listen, really it's not. Be careful. Think about how we may have shared this in the past, right? It's all about, and then you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank with the things that you might have said in the past or that you might say tomorrow. Hopefully they're different, right? I mean, some of us might say, you know, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. Jesus actually told us what religion looks like, right? The word is in the Bible, right? It's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's not about judgment, wrath, or punishment. It's about love, right? So, so here's what ends up happening if that's what we're preaching, friends. We end up welcoming people to a gospel of, of love alone in Christ alone. No need for change. No need to turn from anything. Just come as you are, and then from that point, Love. So besides the obvious that this surely isn't the gospel, there is this. As you and I or anyone we might lead to faith in the gospel like this attempts to live out this Christian life with this kind of skewed understanding from this point forward, here's what will happen over and over to them and to us. We will pull to one of these two poles. If we're not being pulled to the top of the pyramid, to the freedom in Christ, to be free enough that we can obey God willingly with all of our hearts, we will be pulled to one of these two poles in our Christian life. We just will be to legalism or license, possibly never really being saved. Some people may be in the church for a long period of time. I remember being at a church in Richmond, and, and, and uh, the, the, one of the men who invited me to preach for the first time said, just preach the gospel, Sonny, and I'm going, everybody here is a Christian. <laughs> and they, why do you want to preach the gospel? He goes, we just never know. And it wasn't during my sermon, because maybe it wasn't that, but weeks later, a man was there who preached the gospel, a 68-year-old man had been coming to the church for 20, 30 years, came forward weeping because he had been a legalist. And he did not really believe the gospel. And he became a Christian on that day. So that's beside the obvious. And certainly, the other thing that's true is this. We will never enjoy the freedom in Christ. Instead, these two poles will always result in one thing. Fear. 
They will result in fear. Legalism produces a fear that comes from thinking. You know what it looks like. Legalism produces the fear of, I messed up. My salvation could be at stake. I need to do good things. I need to be better. I need to work harder so that God will approve and accept. That's fearful, isn't it? But license is also fear. It's like, what happens there, it's like saying, well, yeah, listen, but actually, I don't know. You know, all my sins are forgiven. It's okay if I mess up. God understands. He loves me. Let me be clear here. That type of thinking will also result in fear, and here's why. It's impossible to actually think that way. Want to know why? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17 say this. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah looking forward. It's a prophecy about Jesus and the gospel. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So friends, it's impossible to live a life of license. Romans 2 will tell you it's impossible for an unbeliever to walk around and, and to, to sin willingly and be like, yeah, there's no God, I don't have to worry about it. No, actually it says in Romans 2 that even the law of God is on their hearts and they're without excuse. But as a Christian, license won't work. You're going to end up in fear. You are going to end up in fear. So even in our licentiousness as Christians, we can't escape the law. And here's the great change that then takes place in our hearts. Hebrews literally teaches us this, that when we come to faith in Christ alone, God gives you and I a new heart. He also gives us his spirit, right? And the result is thou now, now the law of God written in the Bible, in Scripture, is no longer offensive to us. The word of God is no longer offensive to us. We're no longer hostile to the word of God. We no longer say, well, that's, I'm no longer under the law. I'm under grace. I don't want to have to do that. No, no. Now we're like, yes, absolutely. All of it, Lord. Help me, but all of it. Instead, we humbly submit to the Word of God. We delight to do all that God commands us to do. And here in verse 13, Paul tells us what then you need to do. He says, step out. In the freedom and the love that we have in Christ and serve one another. Serve one another. When you and I lean toward either pole, here's what the tendency is. Is that the majority, in the majority of cases, it's because we are focusing on me which will result in fear. But that's what happens. We're, resu- we're, we're focusing on ourselves, not the Lord or his church or his family. And Paul's really going to nail it in, in a few weeks in Galatians 6.2 where he's going to say this, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill what? The law of Jesus Christ, the command of Jesus Christ, which is to love one another, to love one another. It's a beautiful package that he's put together. This then is the cure for your fear, your stress and your anxiety that comes from focusing on me, on myself, on yourself. Serve. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Sometimes we're in the position where we need our burden bared for us. We need people to come alongside of us. Many of you are very good at that. Many of you are very good at that. Some of us are good at having people come bear our burdens, but then (laughs) reciprocating is another issue. We need to do that. Paul then expands this call to love 
one another to the mission of Christ. He says in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And then he says many, but it's one word. You shall, one word, love your neighbors as yourself. This is about the going, right? Go therefore and make disciples. How are you loving this world? Preach the gospel to them. Tell them they need Jesus. Read the Bible to them. Teach them what it says. Lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. You don't actually do it, but you're part of it. Love them. Love them. Finally, he says these words. They're hard. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This was getting good. Why did he do this? Well, again, it's, it's, if we're not living in our freedom, if we're not serving one another in our freedom, we will resort to these poles, and we will be in fear. We'll all walk in fear. So sadly, when the love of Christ is removed from our church, from our relationships, when we misunderstand the law of love, we turn on each other. You're not being good enough. You're sinning all the time. You know, like, I mean, it just, we turn on one another. We criticize. We accuse others. We call serving obligation. Right? And then, well, the pattern is we turn to another gospel. The pattern is, I don't know about your life, but the pattern is that if this isn't working, if, what's not, if this life in Christ is not working for me, what do I do? Well, bookstores, Amazon, got, got a whole department there called what? Self-help. <laughs> and then there's also self-indulgence. That's where people turn to, and that's why we hear the lament of Paul. You were running so well. <laughs> what happened? What happened? So friends, let me, let me give you this in conclusion today. The law of Jesus Christ is love. It's good. It's really good. It's summed up in this. It's summed up in loving God first, in loving one another in the body of Christ second, and then loving others going into this world. But here's what it requires of the Christian. Obedience to the truth of God's word. And so let me encourage you this way today. Number one, stay in the race. Stay in the race. If you've fallen down, get back up and start running again. Get back up. Number two, avoid trip-ups. Read the word. Learn to discern false teaching for yourself. That'll help you avoid trip-ups in this life. And thirdly, serve to win. (laughs) Serve to win. Remember, we are a family of missionary what? Servants. Why? Because we serve our king, whose name is Jesus Christ, and we serve him by serving one another. Pray with me, would you?